Hello, my name is Maya Sersic. I'm professor of international law at the Faculty of Law, University of Zagreb, Croatia. The topic of my lecture today is Article 51 and War Against Terrorism. In the first part of my lecture, I will analyze the anti-terrorist actions in the context of self-defense. I will devote the second part to war against terrorism in the framework of the UN collective security system. I will also briefly comment the state of necessity plea in this context. Prohibition of the use of force is the imperative norm of customary international law. The only exception to that rule, as far as unilateral use of force is concerned, is the right of individual or collective self-defense according to Article 51 of the UN Charter. Beyond the use of force in exercising the right of self-defense, states can use force only upon authorization of the UN Security Council. This is a basic rule and it would have been considered redundant to elaborate before 9-11. Since then, terrorism became one of the major problems in the international community. In responding to terrorist attacks, some states used force which went beyond the parameters set by international law, claiming that the new threat changed the basic rule of international law concerning the use of force. Has the mentioned basic rule really changed? The answer to that question requires us to analyze some principal concepts such as self-defense, preemptive strike and arm attack. Let's start with the concepts of self-defense and preemptive strike. The interpretation of Article 51 of the UN Charter differed even before the escalation of international terrorism in the new millennium. But it would be said that the West, it could be said that the vast majority of commentators took the restricted approach, claiming that the right of individual or collective self-defense exists only if the previous arm attack of a state took place. Thus, self-defense has to be undertaken during the actual attack or if conditions set in the celebrated Caroline case are met immediately prior the, the attack. What are the Caroline conditions? Necessity of self-defense must be instant overwhelming, leaving no choice of means and no moment for deliberation. Many scholars argue that preemptive strike doctrine recognized in the Caroline case could not have had any effect after the entry into, into force of the UN Charter, given the general prohibition of the use of force foreseen in Article 2, Paragraph 4. We agree that the UN Charter in principle forbids the preemptive self-defense 
since Article 51 states that the right of self-defense is triggered only if an arm attack occurs. However, we could imagine exceptional situations in which preventive strikes against imminent armed attacks could be justified as self-defense. That would be, for example, a situation when a state undertakes preemptive strike, destroying long-range missiles ready to be launched to its territory from the territory of another state. The definition of aggression adopted by the 1974 UN General Assembly Resolution allows that possibility, stating that, I quote, the first use of armed force by a state in contravention of the Charter shall continue constitute prima facie evidence of an act of aggression, although the Security Council may conclude that the determination that an act of aggression has been committed would not be justified in the light of other relevant circumstances. Thus, in our view, the Caroline formula continued to be part of customary international law even after the entry into force of, a, of the UN Charter. The Security Council may, taking into account all relevant circumstances of the case, conclude that although a sta state was not the first one to use armed force, it did not commit the act of aggression, but reacted to defeat the imminent armed attack of another state. The requirements of necessity and proportionality, in addition to condition of imminent danger, are key elements in questioning the legality of preemptive strikes. The existence of the said requirements must be established by the U UN Security Council. Thus, it seems correct to argue that the right of self-defense includes also the right to use force in anticipation of an attack, so long as that attack is imminent and the response is proportional and necessary to defeat the, the attack. One mu must agree that in a situation where uh, when the threat is so uh, direct and there is no doubt that the attack is imminent, it would be absurd to oblige a state to wait for the actual attack with all its consequences, such as loss of life and damage to civilian objects. The customary international rule expressed by the Caroline formula gives a legal basis for reaction in situations where the, where the existing imminent danger uh, cannot be eliminated but by acting preventively. The new doctrines started precisely in the context of a notion of imminent danger. Many commentators, mostly political scientists, point out that modern technology pressed the boundaries of imminence. By the time a state knows that, that another state is about to launch an attack, the speed and destructive magnitude of the attack, owing to modern weapons, is usually too great to allow an effective response. Therefore, 
The traditional notion of imminence reflected in the Caroline formula requires redefinition, stress the proponents of a wider scope of the right of preemptive strike. The Caroline test, it is further argued, does not take into account modern realities of international terrorism either. International terrorists have financial resources to acquire chemical, biological, or even radiological weapons. They usually infiltrate the society, camouflage themselves, and attack usually civilian targets by surprise. The sign of a coming terrorist attack often will be the attack itself. Thus, imminence as defined in traditional international law is a limiting factor because terrorists can launch attack, attacks with uh, greater speed and surprise than states. For these reasons, it is argued, new legal definition of preemptive actions is needed, which would be more nuanced and the uh, than the Caroline formula. Therefore, the imminence should be assessed differently when the threat is an attack by weapons of mass destruction and in the case of an attack by conventional weapons. Likewise, a difference should be made between the threat of attack by terrorist means and by regular armed forces. We agree that international law still requires imminence as a condition for a preemptive self-defense. Thus, the existing evidence must leave no doubt that the threat of imminent attack exists. Possession of weapons of mass destruction, however, without firm evidence of the intention of imminent attack, will not justify preemptive action. Therefore, doctrines of preemption, which refer to preventive self-defense as right to respond to threats that might be realized at some time in the future, have no basis in the present international law. Nor we see that state practice develops in that direction. The broadening of the right of preemptive actions is not the adequate answer to the new threats such as international terrorism or irresponsible governments in possession of nuclear weapons. Any expansion of the right of preemptive self-defense beyond the Caroline formula is not workable, namely opens the question of legal limits of the exception. If the legal limits are not fixed and interpretation is left to the state practice, that might end in the eventual abolition of the prohibition of the use of force, which is one of the principal achievements of the 20th century. That occurred in the past with the rule of bellum justum, which was introduced to serve as a legal limitation to war, but eventually lost its lost its function because states tended to justify every war as just war. In this regard, we have to remember the words of Thomas Frank, who, speaking about the reform of the UN Charter system, wrote, some change needs to be vigorously resisted. A fundamental Grundnorm 
of the system, which must at all costs be defended against pretended reform, is that except when it is a victim of an actual arm attack, no nation shall be the sole determiner of, the, of its right to use force against another. In the context of the topic of our lecture, the key question is also the legal notion of arm attack. The question arises, which acts are regarded as arm attack that in the sense of Article 51 of the UN Charter allows self-defense? The legal concept of arm attack was a central issue in the judgment of the International Court of Justice in the celebrated Nicaragua case. The court also dealt with it in the more recent judgments, such as the oil platform case between Iran and the US United States. In the Nicar Nicaragua case, the court, confirming the customary law nature of the definition of aggression adopted in 1974 by the UN General Assembly stated that arm attack includes not only actions by regular armed forces across an international border, but also the sending by a state of armed bands, groups, irregulars and mercenaries which carry out acts of armed force against another state of such gravity as to amount to armed attack conducted by regular forces. In the form of two tests which have to be fulfilled, the court gave the answer as to the degree of involvement of a state in actions of individuals which enables attribution of the action to the state. As well known, the court stated that first it has to be examined whether individuals could be held as state officials, that so-called complete dependence test, or if that was not the case, it must be examined whether they were under the effective control of a state, namely if they were financed and su supervised by that state, and additionally if it issued to them specific instructions concerning each of their unlawful actions. This is so-called test of effective control or famous Nicaragua test. Other mention Nicaragua test applicable to the imputability of the terrorist acts to a state supporting them. The mere presence of terrorists in a state does not mean necessarily that the state supports them. The state may not be aware of their presence in its territory or may not have control over parts of its territory uh, where the terrorists prepare their actions in foreign countries. However, if a government finances terrorists at its territory, provides weapons, equipment, advice, and in other ways supports their terrorist action abroad, it will be absurd to require a test of effective control for the attribution of the terrorist acts to a supporting state. In this case, the threshold put by the test of effective control seems too high. Thus, in our opinion, acts of terrorists are attributable to a state if it provides any substantial add 
to the terrorists at its territory. Would such terrorist acts mean aggression or less serious form of use of force to which armed reaction is not allowed depends on the circumstances of the case. As to the acts of less gravity than acts of aggression, it should be mentioned that some authors defend armed actions in the context of state of necessity, introducing thus second justification ground for using force in a fight against terrorism, in addition to self-defense. They point out that the only adequate response to the legal challenges posed by the fight against cross-border terrorism lies in the state of necessity as a circumstance in precluding wrongfulness. According to those authors, the application of a state, a state of necessity rule would end discussions on permissibility and scope of permissible preemptive self-defense because the presence of a grave and imminent peril does not require the actual occurrence of an attack. The actions taken in a state of necessity are much more restricted than those taken in self-defense. The only aim of the forcible measures taken under the circumstances of state of necessity, which measures must be limited in time and ex extent, is to terminate an existing grave and imminent peril to an essential interest of a state. Uh, being aware that nowadays a state of necessity is a recognized circumstance precluding wrongfulness only if it does not mean violation of any imperative norm of, it, of international law, modern proponents of state of necessity as justification ground for the use of force in the battle against terrorism, carefully put that a modern response to legal problems by, uh, posed by struggle against international terrorism can be reached by the progressive development of the notion of status necessitatis as a circumstance precluding wrongfulness. In this regard, it should be mentioned that some authors, Robert A Roberto Ago having been the most distinguished among them, questioned if the use of force under the circumstances of state of necessity might preclude the wrongfulness of an assault which pro proved, especially when viewed in the context, to be less serious. As a member of the International Law Commission, Ago put this question because he admitted that he hesitate, hesitated to ascribe the same force of use Kogans to certain limited actions involving the use of force in foreign territory as had to be accorded to the prohibition of aggression. He stressed that he did not question the wrongfulness of individual use of force or any kind of any kind in international uh, relations beyond the case of self-defense. He considered such acts wrongful, but he wanted to make clear whether the wrongfulness of any such action might, by way of exception, be precluded when the state which committed 
it is able to show that it acted in a real state of necessity. Thus, he held that it remained an open question whether the interpretation of the UN Charter would entail the total exclusion of the applicability of the plea of necessity to acts of less gravity than acts of aggression. It must be said that Argo later obviously abandoned such doubts, as we recall that the International Court of Justice, with Argo as its member, analyzed in the Nicaragua case in depth the distinction between the aggression and frontier incidents and other less serious forms of the use of force. As we know, Argo had not mentioned in his separate opinion to the 1986 judgment any possibility of state of necessity plea in the response to the use of force of less gravity. Coming back to our main concern, namely self-defense plea in the fight against the terrorist attack, we may conclude from the preceding analysis that individual or collective actions aimed at, at, at self-defense are legal if firm evidence exists that terrorists act for a state which sponsored and guided direction. In this regard, several questions arises. Which criteria to use to determine which are states sponsoring or harboring terrorists? Which degree of involvement of a state is needed to consider it harboring state? If a state does not have control of a part of its territory, where terrorists act, shall it nonetheless be deemed to be harboring state? All these questions, very serious if seen in the context of self-defense, become less difficult if seen in the context of the collective security system as built by the UN Charter. Chapter 7 of the UN Charter gave the Security Council the power to take military action. According to Article 39, the Security Council determines the existence of any threat to the peace, breach of peace, or act of aggression, and decides what measures shall be taken in accordance with Article 41 and 42 to maintain international peace and security. Thus, measures in accordance with Article 39 can be used preemptively and there is no requirement that the threat be imminent as in case of self-defense. That included both terrorist acts sponsored by states and those where no firm evidence on the involvement of a state could be found. Thus. In both cases, the Security Council is entitled to exercise its powers under Chapter 7. The first resolution adopted after 9-11 confirmed the said orientation of the Security Council, namely its determination to combat by all means threats to international peace and security caused by terrorist acts. Later resolutions repeated the same. Thus, 
There is no doubt that in the context of the collective security regime of the UN Charter, the Security Council can decide to take necessary measures, including military actions, to preempt threats of terrorist acts. In other words, the Security Council can approve the use of preemptive military force against the threat to international peace and security posed by acts of international terrorism, sponsored or not by states, even if an attack is not yet imminent. In the context of the right of self-defense, that would be, as we have seen, contrary to the existing international law. Coming to the very conclusion, let us repeat that all arguments of the partisans of the wider right of preemptive action, which would not be limited by requirements of the Caroline case, lose their weight in the light of the powers of the Security Council under the collective security system. All their requirements are already met within that system. Therefore, to make possible quick and effective preemptive actions against international terrorism, there is no need to change or violate the existing rule on the right of self-defense. Instead, the existing rules of Chapter 7 of the UN Charter must be applied. It must be recalled that under the UN Security Council, mandate a wide scale of measures against terrorists, including military actions, are possible, even if the threat is not imminent. Only such an approach offers, beyond any doubt, legally sound and practically sustainable results. Thank you for your attention.